Hello, and welcome to the November Respiratory Care Podcast. This month, we have a lengthy and diverse issue. There should be something of interest for everyone. I am Dean Hess, editor of the journal, and I'm here with Sarah Moore. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. Complications from Recruitment Maneuvers in Patients with Acute Lung Injury, Secondary Analysis from the Lung Open Ventilation Study, is by Fan and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate the frequency, timing, and risk factors for complications from recruitment maneuvers in adult patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. This was a secondary analysis of data from a randomized controlled trial of lung open ventilation strategy that included sustained inflation recruitment maneuvers. Respiratory and cardiovascular complications from recruitment maneuvers were common, occurring in 22% of patients receiving recruitment maneuvers, and the majority occurred within seven days of enrollment. New air leak through an existing chest tube was uncommon, occurring in less than 5% of cases. As compared to patients receiving one or fewer recruitment maneuvers, the number of recruitment maneuvers received was associated with increased risk in both younger and older patients. Patients with extrapulmonary ARDS had decreased odds of developing. The authors conclude that complications from recruitment maneuvers were common, but serious complications were infrequent. There is a significant association between the number of recruitment maneuvers received and complications, even after controlling for illness severity and duration. Our second paper this month is Recruitment Maneuver in Prevention of Hypoxia During Percutaneous Dilational Tracheostomy, Randomized Trial by Franke et al. The aim of this study was to evaluate the efficacy of performing a recruitment maneuver before tracheostomy. The authors enrolled 29 trauma patients with acute lung injury criteria requiring tracheostomy in a university ICU. Subjects were ventilated on volume-controlled mechanical ventilation with a tidal volume of 6 milliliters per kilogram and an FiO2 set at 1. Subjects were randomized into two groups, recruitment maneuver group and no recruitment maneuver group. Recruitment maneuvers were performed by continuous positive airway pressure of 40 centimeters water for 40 seconds. Subjects who underwent recruitment maneuver had a significant increase in PaO2 five minutes after the maneuver and were always significantly maintained throughout the following times of the study compared to the no recruitment maneuver group. The authors conclude that application of a recruitment maneuver before percutaneous dilational tracheostomy could be useful to avoid hypoxemia following such procedure by reducing the fall in PaO2. Fan et al. evaluated the frequency, timing, and risk factors for complications from recruitment maneuvers in adult patients with ARDS. Complications were common, but serious complications were infrequent. Continuing on the theme of recruitment maneuvers, Franchi and colleagues evaluated the efficacy of recruitment maneuvers before tracheostomy. Their results suggest that recruitment maneuvers performed before percutaneous dilational tracheostomy could be useful to avoid hypoxemia following the procedure. 
As Imanaka points out in his editorial, much remains to be learned about the role of recruitment maneuvers in the care of mechanically ventilated patients. Given their uncertain benefit in patients with ARDS and the potential for complications with repeated application, the routine use of recruitment maneuvers is not justified. However, they may have a role in association with procedures that result in alveolar derecruitment. Isoflurane for life-threatening bronchospasm, a 15-year single-center experience, is by Turner et al. They hypothesize that isoflurane is safe and would lead to improved gas exchange in children with life-threatening bronchospasm refractory to conventional therapy. This was a retrospective review and included mechanically ventilated children treated with isoflurane in a quaternary pediatric ICU for life-threatening bronchospasm from 1993 to 2007. 31 patients with a mean age of 9.5 years were treated with isoflurane from 1993 to 2007. Mean time to initiation of isoflurane after intubation was 13 hours, and mean maximum isoflurane dose was 1.1%. Mean duration of isoflurane administration was 54.5 hours, with a total mean duration of mechanical ventilation of 252 hours. Isoflurane led to significant improvement in pH and pCO2 within four hours of initiation. Complications during isoflurane administration included hypotension requiring vasoactive infusions in 77%, arrhythmia in 10%, neurologic side effects in 10%, and pneumothorax in 3% of patients. The authors concluded that isoflurane led to improvement in pH and pCO2 within four hours in this series of mechanically ventilated patients with life-threatening bronchospasm. The majority of patients in this series developed hypotension but there was a low incidence of other side effects related to the isoflurane administration. Isoflurane appears to be an effective therapy in patients with life-threatening bronchospasm refractory to conventional therapy. However, further investigation is warranted given the uncertain overall impact of isoflurane in this context. Volatile anesthetics are used in some centers for the treatment of severe bronchospasm. Turner et al. retrospectively reviewed one center's experience with the use of isoflurane in this setting. They concluded that isoflurane is an effective therapy in patients with life-threatening bronchospasm refractory to conventional therapy. This study is limited by its retrospective design and lack of a control group. As Walsh and Green write in their editorial, much is yet to be learned before this therapy is ready for prime time. Next, we have the study, Inspiratory Limb Carbon Dioxide Entrainment During High-Frequency Oscillatory Ventilation, Characterization in a Mechanical Test Lung and Swine Model by Bostick and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to determine if retrograde CO2 entrainment occurs and how it is altered by HFOV parameter settings. An HFOV was interfaced to a cuffed endotracheal tube and connected to a mechanical test lung. Negative pressure changes within the circuit's inspiratory limb were measured while HFOV settings were manipulated. Retrograde CO2 entrainment was evaluated by insufflating CO2 into the test lung to achieve 40 mmHg at the carina. 
Inspiratory limb CO2 entrainment was measured at incremental distances from the Y piece. HFOV settings and cuff leak were varied to assess their effect on CO2 entrainment. Control experiments were conducted using a conventional ventilator. Test lung results were validated on a large hypercapnic swine. Negative pressure was detectable within the inspiratory limb of the HFOV circuit and varied inversely with mean airway pressure and directly with oscillatory pressure amplitude. CO2 was readily detectable within the inspiratory limb and was proportional to the negative pressure that was generated. Factors that decreased CO2 entrainment in both test lung and swine included low pressure amplitude, high mean airway pressure, high oscillatory frequency, high bias flow, and endotracheal tube cuff leak placement. CO2 entrainment was also reduced by utilizing a higher bias flow strategy at any targeted mean airway pressure. The authors conclude that retrograde CO2 entrainment occurs during HFOV use and can be manipulated with the ventilator settings. This phenomenon may have clinical implications on the development or persistence of hypercapnia. Although its use is controversial, HFOV has been utilized as a rescue oxygenation therapy in patients with ARDS. Bostick and colleagues examined whether retrograde CO2 entrainment occurs due to the active exhalation with HFOV. They found that retrograde CO2 entrainment occurs during HFOV and can be manipulated with the ventilator settings. Chatburn and Al-Khatib, in their detailed editorial, provide an engineering model using electric circuit analysis to describe the mechanism for this finding. Humidified high-flow nasal oxygen during respiratory failure in the emergency department feasibility and efficacy is by Langlet and colleagues. The author studied the feasibility and efficacy of high-flow nasal cannula in patients exhibiting acute respiratory failure presenting to the emergency department. This was a prospective observational study in a university hospital. Patients with acute respiratory failure requiring greater than 9 liters per minute oxygen or ongoing clinical signs of respiratory distress despite oxygen therapy were included. The device of oxygen administration was then switched from non-rebreathing mask to high-flow nasal cannula. Dyspnea, rated by the Borg scale and a visual analog scale, respiratory rate, and SpO2 were collected before and 15, 30, and 60 minutes after beginning HFNC. Feasibility was assessed through caregivers' acceptance of the device in terms of practicality and perceived effect on the subjects evaluated by questionnaire. Seventeen subjects with a median age of 64 years were studied. Pneumonia was the most common reason for oxygen therapy. High-flow nasal cannula was associated with a significant decrease in dyspnea scores. Respiratory rate decreased from 28 to 25 breaths per minute, and SpO2 increased from 90% to 97%. HFNC was well tolerated and no adverse event was noted. Altogether, 76% of healthcare givers declared preferring HFNC as compared to conventional oxygen therapy. The authors conclude that HFNC is possible in the emergency department and it alleviates dyspnea and improves respiratory parameters in subjects with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. 
In recent years, there has been much clinical and academic interest in the use of heated and humidified high-flow nasal cannula oxygen therapy. Langlet et al. studied the feasibility and efficacy of this therapy in the emergency department. They found that switching to high-flow oxygen therapy by nasal cannula from non-rebreathing masks alleviated dyspnea and improved respiratory parameters in subjects with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. This observational study provides additional evidence for the benefit of high-flow nasal cannula therapy. Short-term effects of humidification devices on respiratory pattern and arterial blood gases during non-invasive ventilation is by Lelouch et al. The aim of this study was to compare the short-term impact of heat and moisture exchangers and heated humidifiers during NIV for either hypercapnic or hypoxemic acute respiratory failure. Consecutive subjects receiving NIV were successfully treated with heat and moisture exchanger and heated humidifier in randomized order for 30 minutes each. At the end of each period, arterial blood gases were measured and ventilatory parameters were recorded. 81 subjects were enrolled, of whom 52 were hypercapnic and 29 were hypoxemic. Minute ventilation was greater with the heat and moisture exchanger in comparison with the heated humidifier, while PaCO2 was increased when using heat and moisture exchanger, indicating a dead space effect. This effect was observed in all subjects, but was more pronounced in hypercapnic subjects. In a subgroup of 19 subjects with respiratory acidosis, alveolar hypoventilation improved only with the heated humidifier. The amplitude of the dead space impact was a function of the degree of hypercapnia. The authors conclude that use of a heated moisture exchanger decreased CO2 elimination during NIV, despite increased minute ventilation, especially in hypercapnic subjects. Another area of controversy is the need for humidification during non-invasive ventilation. Lelouch et al. compared a heat and moisture exchanger and heated humidifier during non-invasive ventilation. They found that use of a heat and moisture exchanger decreased carbon dioxide elimination during non-invasive ventilation despite increased minute ventilation. This effect was most evident in hypercapnic subjects. This suggests that a heat and moisture exchanger should not be used during non-invasive ventilation. Next, we have the paper by Rashmal et al. Practice of Excessive FiO2 and Effect on pulmonary outcomes in mechanically ventilated patients with acute lung injury. These authors sought to assess excessive FiO2 exposure in mechanically ventilated patients with acute lung injury and evaluate the effect on pulmonary outcomes. From a database of ICU patients with acute lung injury identified by prospective electronic medical record screening, they identified those who underwent invasive mechanical ventilation for greater than 48 hours. Ventilator settings, including FiO2 and corresponding SpO2, were collected from the electronic medical record at 15-minute intervals for the first 48 hours. Excessive FiO2 was defined as FiO2 greater than 0.5, despite SpO2 greater than 
The association between the duration of excessive exposure and pulmonary outcomes was assessed by change in oxygenation index from baseline to 48 hours and was analyzed by univariate and multivariate linear regression analysis. Of 210 patients who met the inclusion criteria, 74% were exposed to excessive FiO2 for a median duration of 17 hours. Prolonged exposure to excessive FiO2 correlated with worse oxygenation index at 48 hours in a dose-response manner. Both exposure to higher FiO2 and longer duration of exposure were associated with worsening oxygenation index at 48 hours, more days on mechanical ventilation, longer ICU stay, and longer hospital stay. No mortality difference was noted. The authors conclude that excessive oxygen supplementation is common in mechanically ventilated patients with acute lung injury and may be associated with worsening lung function. Optimal titration of inspired oxygen is important to prevent hyperoxia in critically ill mechanically ventilated patients. Despite increasing evidence of the deleterious effects of hyperoxia, there is a paucity of data about FiO2 practice and oxygen exposure among critically ill patients. Rashmel and colleagues assessed excessive FiO2 exposure in mechanically ventilated patients and evaluated its effect on pulmonary outcomes. They found that excessive oxygen supplementation is common in mechanically ventilated patients with ARDS and may be associated with worsening lung function. This should prompt clinicians to be vigilant about appropriate FiO2 titration. Influence of nebulizer type with different pediatric aerosol masks on drug deposition in a model of a spontaneously breathing small child is by Lynn and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to quantify aerosol delivery using a lung simulator of the spontaneously breathing parameters of a small child to determine the influence of nebulizer type, actuation mechanisms, and pediatric aerosol masks. Three types of nebulizer, constant output, breath-enhanced and breath-actuated nebulizer, and three masks, standard pediatric mask, the fish mask, and a valved mask, were chosen for testing. The actuation mechanism of a breath-actuated nebulizer was tested by manual synchronization with inspiration, breath actuation, and continuous nebulization. The nebulizer performance was determined by determining mass median aerodynamic diameter and analyzing drug deposition distal to the trachea, inhaled mass, on the face, on the mask, residual drug in the nebulizer, and time of nebulization. The quantity of salbutamol deposited was determined by spectrophotometry. Mass median aerodynamic diameter was similar across nebulizers. Breath-actuated nebulization generated a lower inhaled dose and higher nebulization time than continuous nebulization. Breath-synchronized aerosol generation, whether breath-actuated or manually actuated, yielded 10 to 20 times lower inhaled mass than continuous nebulization. Both AeroEclipse and NebEasy operated continuously, delivered greater inhaled dose than the LC+. Higher inhaled dose was achieved with the fish mask than standard or valved mask, with all nebulizers tested. The authors conclude that, in this model, using ventilatory parameters associated with a 2-4 to four year old child, breath-actuated nebulization was not as effective as continuous nebulization. 
Next, we have another paper evaluating aerosol delivery entitled Aerosol Delivery During High Frequency Jet Ventilation and MRI Evaluation by Sued and colleagues. The objective of this study was to compare delivery of aerosolized GDDTPA in three neonatal ventilator circuits, conventional mechanical ventilation, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, and high-frequency jet ventilation. Aerosols of GDDTPA generated using a jet nebulizer placed in the inspiratory limb of each ventilator were delivered into an in vitro lung model simultaneously. Multi-splice spin echo sequence scans were obtained prior to and after 10 and 20 minutes of cumulative aerosol therapy. GDDTPA concentration was calculated from signal intensity changes and the total amount of GDDTPA was estimated. GDDTPA was visualized in the lung model at 10 and 20 minutes for all three ventilators. GDDTPA delivery was highest with conventional mechanical ventilation, followed by high-frequency jet ventilation and high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. The authors conclude that there is effective aerosol delivery in a neonatal high-frequency jet ventilation circuit. These studies contribute to the body of knowledge related to aerosol delivery in children. Lynn et al. evaluated the influence of nebulizer type with different pediatric aerosol masks on drug deposition in a model using ventilation parameters associated with a spontaneously breathing two to four year old child. Breath actuated nebulization was not as effective as continuous nebulization. In another model of aerosol delivery technique, Sued and colleagues evaluated aerosol delivery during neonatal high-frequency jet ventilation. They used magnetic resonance imaging of an innovative and inexpensive lung phantom and found that aerosol deposition with jet ventilation was intermediate between that observed with conventional ventilation and HFOV. As with all lung model studies, these study results must be clinically validated. Does experience influence the performance of neonatal and pediatric manual hyperinflation is by Oliviera et al. This study assessed whether professional training on the application of manual hyperinflation influences its performance. It was an experimental study conducted with physiotherapists, including 11 with previous professional experience and 11 without previous experience. They applied manual hyperinflation in a test lung model using self-inflating bags in two sizes from three manufacturers. The test lung simulated the lung mechanics of a newborn and a pediatric patient in two different clinical situations. The professionals were instructed to perform manual hyperinflation as described in the literature. Measurements of inspiratory volume, peak inspiratory pressure, peak inspiratory flow, and peak expiratory flow were recorded using a pneumotachograph in each condition. The delivered peak inspiratory flow was higher in the experienced group than in the inexperienced group. This result was observed in both neonatal and pediatric self-inflating bags. There was no difference in the parameters delivered between the experienced and inexperienced groups. The authors conclude that overall manual hyperinflation performance was similar between the experienced and inexperienced groups. The only difference was the observation of the highest peak inspiratory flow in the results from the experienced group. 
Next is the paper, CPAP has no effect on clearance, sputum properties, or expectorated volume in cystic fibrosis by Nakagawa et al. To evaluate whether CPAP would increase the beneficial clearance effect of hypertonic saline in subjects with cystic fibrosis, the authors investigated the effects of CPAP alone and CPAP followed by hypertonic saline on sputum physical properties and expectoration volume in subjects with cystic fibrosis. In this crossover study, 15 subjects were randomized to the following interventions, 48 hours apart, directed coughs, CPAP at 10 centimeters water, 7% hypertonic saline, and both CPAP and hypertonic saline. Sputum collection was performed at baseline and after interventions. There were no significant differences between any treatment in arterial blood pressure, heart rate, or pulse oximetry between the two time points. Hypertonic saline and CPAP with hypertonic saline improved cough clearability by 50% and expectorated volume secretion by 530%. However, there were no differences between control and CPAP on sputum contact angle, cough clearability, or volume of expectorated secretion. The authors conclude that CPAP alone had no effect on mucus clearance, sputum properties, or expectorated volume and did not potentiate the effects of hypertonic saline alone in subjects with cystic fibrosis. The results of studies of manual hyperinflation to improve airway clearance in adults have shown considerable variability and thus this therapy remains controversial. Oliveira et al. evaluated whether experience influences the performance of neonatal and pediatric manual hyperinflation. Overall, manual hyperinflation performance was similar between the experienced and inexperienced therapist. The only difference was the observation of the highest peak inspiratory flow in the experienced group. Also on the topic of airway clearance, Aguino and colleagues evaluated whether CPAP would increase the beneficial airway clearance effect of hypertonic saline in subjects with cystic fibrosis. They found that CPAP alone had no effect on airway clearance, sputum properties, or expectorated volume, and did not potentiate the effect of hypertonic saline alone in subjects with cystic fibrosis. Comparison of cardiopulmonary responses during two incremental step tests in subjects with COPD is by Andrade et al. The objective of this study was to compare the exercise tolerance time, cardiopulmonary stress, and perception of effort between the Chester step test and a modified incremental step test. 32 subjects with COPD were randomized to perform the Chester step test and modified incremental step test on the same day, an hour apart, on a single step. During the tests, pulmonary gas exchange was measured continuously by a portable metabolic system. The Chester step test had shorter duration and also lower number of steps in comparison with the modified incremental step test. However, similar cardiopulmonary responses were observed at exercise peak. Dyspnea and leg fatigue scores when correcting for exercise duration were higher for Chester step test. The authors conclude that the slower the work rate increment during step test, the higher the exercise tolerance. Regardless of the work rate increment, cardiopulmonary stress and exertion effort at peak exercise were equivalent between tests. 
These authors compared exercise tolerance time, cardiopulmonary stress, and perception of effort between the Chester step test and a modified incremental step test in subjects with COPD. They found that the slower the work rate increment during the step test, the higher the exercise tolerance. Regardless of the work rate increment, cardiopulmonary stress and exertion effort at peak exercise were equivalent between tests. Bronchoscopic lung biopsy using non-invasive ventilatory support, case series and review of literature of NIV-assisted bronchoscopy is by Agarwal et al. The objective was to report the efficacy and safety of an innovative technique of NIV-assisted bronchoscopic lung biopsy in a small case series of hypoxemic subjects with diffuse parenchymal infiltrates. The authors also systemically review the literature on NIV-assisted bronchoscopy. Subjects with bilateral diffuse parenchymal infiltrates in PaO2 to FiO2 ratio less than 200 mm mercury underwent bronchoscopic lung biopsy under NIV support. NIV was initiated 10 minutes before the procedure and continued for 30 minutes after the procedure. The primary outcomes were performance of successful procedure and episodes of decline in SpO2 to less than 90%. Secondary endpoints were the change in respiratory and hemodynamic parameters during the procedure and occurrence of complications like pneumothorax, hemorrhage, and endotracheal intubation. Six subjects with a mean age of 44.5 years were included in the study. The median PaO2 to FiO2 ratio prior to lung biopsy was 165 millimeters mercury, and the median inspiratory and expiratory positive airway pressures were 14 centimeters water and 5 centimeters water. Fiber-optic bronchoscopy was well tolerated, and all subjects maintained an SpO2 greater than 92% during the procedure. One subject required endotracheal intubation due to hemoptysis. A definite diagnosis was obtained in five of the six subjects. A repeat procedure was performed in one subject, which again yielded no diagnosis. No other periprocedural complications were encountered. The authors conclude that NIV-assisted bronchoscopic lung biopsy is a novel method for obtaining diagnosis in hypoxemic patients with diffuse lung infiltrates. Although fiber-optic bronchoscopy and lung biopsy are important diagnostic tools in patients with diffuse pulmonary infiltrates, patients undergoing this procedure often have hypoxemic respiratory failure. Agarwal et al. found that non-invasive ventilation-assisted bronchoscopic lung biopsy is a novel method for obtaining diagnosis in hypoxemic patients with diffuse lung infiltrates. However, this approach should be reserved for centers with extensive experience in non-invasive ventilation, and further studies are needed to define the utility of this approach. Our next paper is Nocturnal Hypoxemia But Not Hypercapnia Correlates with Sleep Quality in Children by Krivek and colleagues. The aim of this study was to assess whether there is a correlation between nocturnal hypoxemia and hypercapnia and sleep efficiency and sleep fragmentation in children. Nocturnal pulse oximetry and transcutaneous carbon dioxide recordings with simultaneous actigraphy were performed in 38 children with nocturnal hypoxemia and hypercapnia during spontaneous breathing, 25 children with partially corrected nocturnal hypoventilation, and 11 subjects with a normal 
normal nocturnal gas exchange. Sleep efficiency and sleep fragmentation on actigraphy correlated with a minimal SpO2 and the percentage of nighttime with SpO2 less than 90% in the nocturnal hypoventilation group. Sleep efficiency and sleep fragmentation also correlated with pulse rate standard deviation. No correlation was observed between sleep efficiency and sleep fragmentation in transcutaneous PCO2. No correlation was observed between sleep efficiency and sleep fragmentation and SpO2, transcutaneous PCO2, and pulse rate in the partially corrected nocturnal hypoventilation group. Sleep efficiency, sleep fragmentation, and nocturnal SpO2 and transcutaneous PCO2 were all normal and not corrected in the no nocturnal hypoventilation group. The authors concluded that, in children with nocturnal hypoventilation, nocturnal hypoxemia, but not hypercapnia, correlates with sleep efficiency and sleep fragmentation on actigraphy. The aim of this study was to assess whether there is a correlation between nocturnal hypoxemia and hypercapnia and sleep efficiency and sleep fragmentation in children. They found that in children with nocturnal hypoventilation, nocturnal hypoxemia but not hypercapnia correlates with sleep efficiency and sleep fragmentation. Arterial sampler filling times during arterial and venous punctures and its relationship with mean arterial pressure in human subjects is by Bender and colleagues. The objective was to determine whether the arterial sampler filling time can be an accurate indicator of obtaining an arterial blood sample in subjects with various blood pressures. Prior to an arterial puncture, the authors measured and recorded arterial blood pressure. During the arterial and venipuncture procedures, they measured the amount of time it took to fill the sampler and the volume of blood obtained. The study included 38 human subjects, 22 were adult patients ordered for arterial blood gases by arterial puncture, 16 were normal healthy adult volunteers who had a vena puncture performed using the arterial blood sampler. The mean filling time was 15 seconds per milliliter for the arterial group and 114 seconds per milliliter for the venous group. The authors conclude that their results were consistent with the laboratory study showing a significant difference between arterial and venous filling times and a negative correlation between mean arterial pressure and sampler filling time. Bender et al. determined whether arterial sampler filling time can be an accurate indicator of obtaining an arterial blood sample in subjects with various blood pressures. They found a negative correlation between mean arterial pressure and sampler filling time and suggest that respiratory therapists may find arterial sampler filling time a useful indicator of successful arterial puncture at the bedside. Our final original research paper this month is The Functional Assessment of Patients with Pulmonary Multidrug Resistant Tuberculosis by Godoy et al. The author sought to analyze the respiratory function, functional capacity, and quality of life of patients who were treated for MDR pulmonary TB. This study investigated a cross-sectional cohort of multidrug-resistant TB patients who underwent drug treatment for at least 18 months. The subjects who had associated diseases or disabilities that prevented them from walking were excluded. The subjects underwent the following assessments. 
forced spirometry, a chest radiograph, the six-minute walk distance test, a bioelectrical impedance analysis, maximal inspiratory and expiratory pressures, and a health-related quality-of-life questionnaire. Eighteen patients who met the eligibility criteria were enrolled. Spirometric evaluation showed that 78% of the subjects had abnormal patterns. The maximal respiratory pressures were significantly decreased in all subjects, despite the fact that their nutritional status was within the normal range. The distance completed in the six-minute walk distance test was less than expected in 72% of the subjects. All of the subjects who were evaluated had residual lesions, and 78% reported a worsening in their quality of life. The authors conclude that multiple drug-resistance TB-cured subjects exhibit impaired respiratory function and a mildly reduced functional capacity and quality of life, suggesting that a portion of these patients may require a pulmonary rehabilitation approach. Tuberculosis remains an important public health problem worldwide as its residual lesions result in functional and quality of life impairments. These authors found that cured subjects with multiple drug-resistant pulmonary TB exhibit impaired respiratory function and a mildly reduced functional capacity and quality of life. This month, we publish a clinical practice guideline on transcutaneous monitoring of carbon dioxide and oxygen. Our case reports this month are a case of unexplained hypoxemia and dexmedetomidine for sedation in a parturient with respiratory failure requiring non-invasive ventilation. Our teaching cases are ARDS secondary to descending necrotizing mediastinitis treated by long-term extracorporeal respiratory support, mycoplasma pneumonia bronchiolitis in an adult mimicking asthma, and an unusual discrepancy between SpO2 and SaO2 in a 31-year-old man with chronic myelogenous leukemia. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.